Welcome to the Heme Sapien podcast, where diverse perspectives and healthcare converge. Um, I am here today with Dr. Brett Ginsberg, uh, who is a PI at the University of Health Science Center, uh, sorry, University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, and um, director of the Biological Psychiatry Analytical Laboratory. Um, today, we're going to be talking about kind of the psychiatry and neuroscience aspects of addiction, and we're going to be delving into his research about. Um, in, into this topic. I'm here with my partner, Sissi Zhang. And yeah, let's get into it. Um, before we start, do you mind if I ask you um, like your educational and occupational background? Sure, so I uh, did my undergraduate work at a little liberal arts school in Central Texas, Southwestern University. Um, my major was chemistry and a minor in computer science. Um, I went on to graduate school and completed my PhD at Emory University, where I studied pharmacology. The program there is called Molecular and Systems Pharmacology. And um, after that, I uh, took a postdoctoral position in a laboratory here at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, and was fortunate enough to um, be able to stay on um, became an instructor, and then worked my way up the faculty. Um, and I've stayed here ever since. That's awesome. Uh, sounds like quite a journey. But yeah, um, for those listening to the podcast, I actually uh, worked with Dr. Ginsburg for a summer two years ago. And um, yeah, I just want to give, um, give a chance to talk about his research a little bit. Um, so do you mind like explaining to our audience just like a little bit about like um, like the neuroscience of how addiction works and then maybe about like how your research combats addiction or like like what your research specifically about? Sure. Um, so when we think about addiction, <clears throat> there's been sort of, in my thinking about it, three phases of scientific inquiry into this. The first was very much colored, I think, by uh, a sense of uh, moral judgment of people who suffer from this disorder. Um, and so this was sort of famously characterized by the just say no campaign, where, you know, if people just made the right decision, acted morally, um, you know, they would that that could be a cure for addiction. And of course, that was not scientifically valid or based. Uh, no, there's no evidence basis for that. In fact, it's probably more harmful than helpful. Um, so in the uh, 70s through the 90s, there was, a, there, they, there was a beginning of a realization that there, that there were biological um, aspects to addiction that we probably needed to consider and address. And so most famously, there was the discovery that uh, what seems like the final common pathway for substances that people run into problems with in terms of habitual use, they all seem to increase uh, dopaminergic signaling in uh, a region of the brain that's sort of colloquial, colloquially uh, called the reward pathway. Um, in reality, as research has progressed, we find that it's that's probably not as good a description as we could make of that, what that brain system does. 
it seems like it's more a um, uh, a uh, sort of signal detection um, system. And so things that grab your attention and that are important produce this increase in dopamine in this region. Things that don't turn out the way you do you expected. So prediction errors actually cause a decrease in dopamine in this region. So the fact that drugs of abuse increase dopamine in this region tends to make them sort of overestimated in terms of importance to the in, individual. And um, that can lead to a patterns of behavior where the things that led to that increase in dopamine, namely seeking and using the substance, become more and more important to the person. And they sort of feed on themselves. This, this activity feeds on itself, you can imagine. You, you use a substance that increases dopamine, that seems important. So you use the substance again, it increases dopamine, so that seems important. And this starts to snowball into pathology. So this was sort of the, the underpinning of a, the brain model of addiction, which is sort of what you alluded to when you talk about the neuroscience of addiction. But I think there's a growing appreciation that that's only part of the story and that there's an entire behavioral component to this. Not everyone who uses a substance once becomes instantly addicted. And that was sort of lore back in the 80s um, when, you know, this idea that for, especially things like the crack cocaine epidemic um, followed from people trying it once and then never being able to not use it again. And that's not really true. It's really for most substances, maybe not nicotine, but for most substances, the vast majority of people that you try a substance don't go on to have that kind of problematic pathological pattern of behavior. So I'm really interested, especially in this uh, behavioral component of addiction. And so something I like to say when I introduce my the, the work that I'm doing in this space is that it takes a, a long time for someone to learn how to be substance, have a substance use disorder. Uh, you know, you don't overnight become someone who's afflicted with this problem. And so likewise, when you when someone enters into recovery, it necessarily is going to take time and practice at recovery to to really achieve sustained uh, a sustained recovery from the substance use disorder. So a big part of what um, the research that um, I I think you want that you want to talk about here that I'm doing is uh, related to how an organism, a human, in, in our case, we use a lot of animal models of this, how, how, a, how a person changes their attention uh, during recovery uh, from things that predict and prompt drug use to things that predict and prompt something that's healthier, your recovery activities. Uh, the other thing I'll say about that is that, you know, when someone moves from uh, a substance use disorder condition to recovery, there's actually a lot of behavior that they are no longer engaging in, hopefully. Drug seeking, drug, drug consumption, um, the activities that they might have engaged in while they were consuming drugs, all of that needs to disappear necessarily to, to enter into recovery. And so it's important to find things that can effectively replace that drug use. And so part of our research is looking at how we can 
promote those alternative behaviors that can then come to replace the substance use and that will be sustained. Um, so just uh, to finish up, I would say that, you know, an example that I like to use is um, you may decide to not today after our, after our conversation that you want to go and, and get in, become more fit, become more physically fit. And so you might go home today, grab your shoes and go for a jog. And that's pretty easy to do. And you might do it the next day even, and maybe the day after. But maybe the fourth day it rains or a cold front blows through and it becomes uncomfortable to go for that run. Um, the likelihood that you're gonna keep running after just a few instances is pretty low. It's likely that, you're gonna, that that's gonna get disrupted and you're gonna go right back to your couch potato ways. Not you personally, but one. Um, and so, uh, and so part of our interest is in how we can uh, establish situations, conditions, where even if there's a rainstorm, the person continues to engage in that physical fitness activity, just as an example. Um, so how someone, when they run into some problems at work or with their family or a friend, things that might have led them back to using substances in the past, how they can change that direction and move to other healthier behaviors or persist in those other things that they're trying to do to maintain their recovery. Thank you so much. That was, um, that was very helpful. Like to me, like when I think about addiction, I like think more about like what's going on in the brain, but I agree the behavioral aspect is just as important as the rest. And, um, well, I had one question about what you asked, uh, what you were saying at the end. So like, like in the stages of recovery, uh, or here, let me phrase it this way. You said that like, except for like nicotine, like certain drugs you do once that doesn't necessarily make your hope for the rest of your life, right? How does that change recovery? Because I've seen like some people like they do it once during recovery and then they're back into the cycle immediately, so. Right, so I think it's important to, uh, to, to define here the difference between a lapse and a relapse. Now, these are words that people probably are familiar with, but maybe haven't given a lot of thought to the to whether they mean something different. And and in, in our in our world, they do. So uh, you're absolutely right. Someone could have sustained recovery for years and years and years, and all of a sudden something happens. You know, something catastrophic happens, or something fairly mundane happens. There's not really much predicting what it would be, but that can lead someone to a lapse. A resumption of use. The, that in and of itself may not be a problem. Um, you know, someone after years and years of sobriety meets up with their old high school buddies and goes out for a bender over one weekend. When they go back home and they're back with their family, going back to their job and doing all those things that they've been doing, it may just be sort of what happens with my high school friends stays with my high school friends and it doesn't balloon into a problem. But obviously for some people, they can relapse. That lapse can become a relapse. And what we mean by relapse is this return to the disordered behavior. And um, so, yeah, absolutely. Those are difficult things to predict. But one thing that we do know with a lot of certainty is that the longer someone maintains recovery, the less likely those lapses are, and the less likely those lapses that will, will proceed into relapse will be. 
And so what we know is there's this, there's a, there are several different um, evaluations of this, but there is a, what's known as the relapse curve. And, and it's sort of an exponential decay function. And so for those people, if you start with 100% of people who are in recovery on day one, uh, within a few weeks, that'll quickly drop down to maybe 80 or 75% of those people are still in recovery. You'll lose 25% within the first couple of weeks. And then in the first month, you might lose another 20%. And then over the next three months, another 10%, let's say. Okay, so, but once you get to about three months, the vast majority of people who maintain their recovery for three months will have maintained their recovery at one year. And then an even greater majority of those people who've maintained their recovery for a year will have sustained long lasting recovery and will be resistant to those lapses or relapses. So, so we know that. You're right though, that these kind of idiosyncratic events can happen. And those are very difficult to predict. It's sort of like an earthquake or um, unfortunately like suicides. It's just a very challenging thing to know when that might happen. And the best we can do is to try and give people the most, resili the most resiliency we can. And the thing we know best to do that with is sustained recovery. Okay, yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just kind of personal talk for me because Jack, in college, I just met some people that like, you know, they're also had substance abuse problems in the past. And, you know, I see them anytime struggling with school or anything like that. They just, you know, they want to go back to whatever substances they were abusing before. And, you know, I'm always just worried that like, you know, they do it once, they'll keep doing it again and again and again. But it's good to know that like, there's a difference between the lapse and relapse and that a lapse doesn't necessarily mean, you know, they have to go through all the psychiatry and therapy and everything again. Yeah. Um, I think it's also important to appreciate that there are different trajectories for people. So this has been described by several different people, but there are some people who never develop problems. And that's probably the majority of people. There are some people who uh, develop problems and, uh, and that sustains and they end up in chronic substance use situations um that's the obviously a very problematic group and the one that we're most concerned about there's also a pretty substantial group of people who might descend into substance dis use disorder type behavior during their late teens early 20s but once they move into a, what we would think of as adulthood um it it sort of goes away um the the the, the responsibilities and pressures of life, you know, spouses and jobs and these things sort of push that back. And um, so for, for, for a substantial number of people you might be concerned about in college, they, they may mature out of it. It's the ones that don't that we're really concerned about, obviously. Okay, well, that's at least a little comforting here. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna let my partner, Sissy Zay, uh, ask a couple questions. Um, but research. Yeah, um, actually kind of continuing on to what you were talking about before. So you mentioned that it's only really a concern when some of these like addictive behaviors kind of continue on past college. Do you sort of observe a trend where younger individuals are more likely to become addicted to substances? Since I think we've heard a lot about how when your brain is developing, it's sort of more likely for you to end up being addicted. Is this the case or is that kind of a misconception? 
No, I think that's that's uh, that's borne out by the evidence that um, earlier onset um, is is a is problematic, and the and the longer someone delays getting involved with substances, the the less likely that that person is going to end up encountering these kinds of really pathological problems. Um, so yeah, it's it is certainly always my advice that people wait to do all of that experimentation um, until later in their life when they're more developed. And you're absolutely right. Some of this is brain maturation. There's no doubt about it. Younger people tend to be more impulsive. They tend not to have a very good um, ability to, or as good an ability to evaluate risk and potential consequence. Um, you know, and, and, and that said, I will, I will say one thing about um, sort of how you just, ask the question, I, you know, I, I think we're most concerned about people who don't mature out for sure in the terms of their long term health and, you know, well being. But obviously, people who enter into substance use disorder behaviors in college or high school, we have concern about them too, because they're at much higher likelihood to get involved in accidents, car accidents, injure themselves, injure others, and also engage in Unfortunately, you know, aggression, um, you know, assaults, those kinds of um, those kinds of activities. You see, you see that a lot in younger users, um, and that all kind of folds right back on what I was saying about the maturation, brain maturation, and this sort of um, predilection for impulsivity in younger people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really interesting how you focus a lot about how we can support the recovery process, because I think a lot of research on addiction is focused on how can we prevent addiction in the first place or how can, or the science behind addiction rather than the recovery process. Um, no, thank so you, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I obviously agree completely. <laughs> um, on that kind of transition to your specific research, um, I noticed that you do a lot of your research on rats and using mice models. And so how well do you think these studies on rats kind of transition to humans? I think that we have to be really careful when we interpret these studies. I think that there are certain things that translate well and certain things that probably don't translate as well. Um, so, so in the context of the work that I specifically do, we do a lot of work that revolves around uh, basic behavioral processes, how an organism learns to respond to situations that lead to some outcome. So they may be in a situation where access to a drug is easy. Uh, you know, an example of that would be in a bar. You're much more likely to have a drink in a bar than to study calculus in a bar because everything at the bar is arranged to help facilitate drinking and isn't really set up to facilitate studying calculus in any way, shape or form. Alternatively, in a library, you, you would probably be escorted out pretty quickly as soon as someone realized that you were drinking in the library. And so it's not really set up to facilitate drinking. There's no access to alcohol. There are librarians walking around watching what's going on. Um, on the other hand, it's very well situated to um, studying. And so understanding how an organism, an individual responds in those two different situations um, is sort of a basic fundamental process. And these basic behavioral processes 
seem very conserved from birds to rodents to monkeys to people. Um, the neurobiology that we were talking about earlier, that all seems very well conserved. That, that dopaminergic system that I was talking about, that is present in all of those organisms that I mentioned. Um, where things get a little different, obviously, is in the, corte in the cortex, that you know, wrinkly part at the top of your brain that really differentiates you and me from any other creature that we've ever encountered in the universe. Um, that executive function that we have, that's something that's much more challenging to examine in these uh, animal models. Um, primates are closer, obviously, but there are challenges in studying these things in primates in some cases. Um, but, you know, when it comes to things like um, duration of drug action, that can be very difficult to study in a rodent, for instance, because rodents are very good at detoxifying poisons that they may encounter out in the world. Um, so they can metabolize drugs very quickly. And obviously, if that affects how likely the organism is to use that drug a second time, if it happens, if it goes away very quickly, it may, that's lack of sustained action may reduce their likelihood to use it or may increase their likelihood to use it. And so we have to be conscientious about the species differences, um, you know, but in terms of looking at how stimuli in the in the environment, these sort of cues that may predict drug use or something else um, affect the behavior, that's pretty, that's pretty conserved. That said, we have to be very con conscientious of anthropomorphism. Um, an example I like to give is that um, in, in some of the studies I started with uh, lights as stimulus cues and the lights would come on and they would go off, they would come on and flash to signal different things. At some point, I, I, I needed to use auditory tones, sounds. And so I put the rats in their, in their environment and only presented sounds to guide their behavior. There were no lights on in their, in their environment. And a lot of people said, but how will they know what to do? How will they see where they're going? And of course, that's very human-centric, right? Humans are very visually oriented. The visual world is really how we relate for the most part with our world. A rat has very poor vision and largely orients itself by the sights, or sorry, by the smells and sounds and feelings it gets from its whiskers. So we have to be careful not to think that the rat is perceiving the world the way we are. But again, these basic processes seem to be pretty well conserved and we've done a pretty good job of recognizing which things translate from rats to monkeys to people. Yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned your research on the lice stimuli and how you kind of had to consider um, the anthropomorphic or aspects of designing your research. Um, and on research design, I read that paper a little bit and I read about how you chose to use 16 rats specifically. Um, was there a specific reason why you had that experimental design set up with 16 rats? Um, was that a specific number or was that something that just ended up happening? So this is probably uh, not going to uh, be, make, make your listeners or you too enthusiastic, but um, it's, it's really math. 
Um, so, so, so the, so in terms of scientific design, the, the best way to proceed really is obviously when you start, you don't really know anything. And so you might do a small study in a small group of animals that you get some outcome, you get some result. And if you get that result, you can measure how big the effect was in the context of the variability of the result across that number of animals. Once you have that in place, you can do what's called a power analysis. And so when you do your next study, you should look at your power analysis. You, this is a mathematical, um, a mathematical formulation that anyone could look up. Uh, so you want to look for how many animals you need to demonstrate the effect of the size you saw previously. And so that was really the way we proceed is we look at a, an early study and we say, you know, if, if, the, if the effect we're looking for is a change of 100 units and our variability is 25 units, how many animals will we need to ensure that if that occurs, we'll see it? And so that is uh, really the best way to select sample sizes for really any study. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you don't see that consistently through the scientific literature. In a lot of cases, people do one-offs and they just pick a number based on their own sort of guess as to what it needs to be. Um, but ideally, you would use the earlier results to guide your next study by looking at what kind of resolution you need in terms of the effect, the size of the effect you're looking for, and the amount of variability across those individuals you expect. Well, yeah, it's very fascinating how many things go into consideration when designing research in itself. You have to consider how well it translates from animal models to humans, and how the behaviors may differentiate, and then even having to use mathematical models as well. So that's very interesting to hear. Um, and then, oh, oh, I was just going to say, you know, another another example of that is a decision whether you use the, you know, you, you use the daytime or the nighttime mm -hmm. and we can switch things so that it, night inside the laboratory is actually our day because obviously we're all up in the day. But, you know, if you think about, for instance, a rat, they're most active at night. And so if we test during the day, you've got to just kind of take that into consideration that their day is like our night anyway. So yes, there, I, there are any, there, it feels like infinite little nuanced considerations that you've got to kind of think about. Mm, that's very true. And yeah, something I hadn't realized before, these rats are pretty much functioning as if it's their nighttime when it's our daytime. Uh, oh, I just have one more, more question. Uh, one question like regarding this. Uh, when I worked in the lab, uh, you also said Male rats to female rats. Um, there's a reason why, like, like, what difference does it make whether, like, the conditioning is done on a male rat versus a female? Right. That's a great question. Um, so there's a little bit of a political angle to this, and um, that is that historically, if you look at scientific literature, most of the scientists were men, and most of their subjects were male, and that was basically the beginning and end of it all because well that was what they were thinking about um there's another aspect to that and that is that um you know females are simply more complicated than males we're just a little simpler 
and I, I, I mean that in many ways, but, you know, if you think about hormonally, um, you know, those, and there's been clear evidence that in the context of substance use disorder, hormonal fluctuations may be important. Um, you know, men are just more static in terms of their hormonal state than, than females are. And that's true, obviously, in rats and in people. Um, that said, while there are some reasons to think that there may be sex differences uh, between men and women, we would only know that by looking. And so there's been a, a mandate, really, by the, or the, by the National Institutes on Health, which funds most of the research in this country uh, on, this, on this and many other topics, to make sure that we're including females in our studies and, and, and adequately including females. Um, and so I, I think that on the whole, that's been a really important and um, beneficial uh, mandate. I think it's really changed the way we think about these things and really brings your question right to the front. That said, you know, when you, when you really look at it, I think a lot of the potential sex differences people think they see may be more social constructs than not. So for instance, it used to be thought that men were more likely to smoke cigarettes than women. But then they started marketing cigarettes to women and women started entering the workplace. Uh, you know, women's roles in society changed and all of a sudden women started smoking more than men. And so they thought, oh, well, maybe women are more uh, prone to smoking addiction than men. Um, that seems to have sort of normalized now because as you're probably aware, there's been a lot of push to try and reduce smoking across the board and that's been successful and it seems like things have kind of e evened out a little more um, so that said you know men and women while there are differences are fundamentally more sim we're more similar than we are different and so i think in the vein of these being sort of conserved biologic and neurobiologic processes um I, you know I, I i don't have a lot of reason to think that there's a there are big big differences in terms of addiction liability. I, I wouldn't say that women are more liable to addiction or men are more liable to addiction. Again, I think this all has to do with the social situation that the individual finds themselves in. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I definitely observed that most, like very, very much a human stuff like this. I mean, it just, uh, people here that I see that like rely on substances like it's gender really never had an effect it's just you know whatever their upbringing was it's you normally it was because of some trauma they had in their back and uh their you know background or you know something that happened in the past that really made this happen but it never seemed like gender was like the big you know reason why something happened um i'll hand the mic back to susan yeah and i also think that's really interesting because um, in one of my classes we discussed a lot about how research isn't very isolated or science isn't isolated there's also a social aspect that you have to consider because they kind of influence one another. So it's great how you point out that um, in your study, you kind of separated male and female rats, but at the end of the day, you found out that it was a lot of social factors that influence behavior and not just, you know, maybe the scientific or biological factors. And then I know previously you were talking a lot about how you sort of use your previous research to influence research that you conduct in the future. So we were asking about that one specific study where you modeled conditioning and how that influences 
behaviors in mice or rats. Um, and so from that paper, you sort of discovered that there wasn't a specific or a significant impact of conditioning on reinforcing behaviors. And so are you planning on changing the model to potentially identify like using different forms of conditioning or how are you planning on modeling that form of research into something new in the future? So I think it's important to define the different kinds of conditioning. Uh, so mm -hmm. the study you're, you're referencing, uh, I believe, is was really focused on what's thought of it, what's considered classical conditioning. People may know this as yeah. Pavlovian conditioning. So this is pretty well known sort of in the general public square. Um, this is the famous example of the Russian scientist who realized that if he rang a bell every time he fed the dog, eventually he could ring the bell and the dog would start salivating in anticipation of getting food. And so that was a classical conditioning paradigm. Um, this is really the concept that's driven a lot of clinical practice, to be honest. Uh, this idea of triggers, the uh, things that are associated with drug use or drinking, uh, kind of prompting a relapse. But there's a whole other type of conditioning that um, uh, in particular B.F. Skinner was uh, involved in developing in about 100 years ago. Um, and in that, in that um, situation, it's not just that you ring the bell and then the food ar arrives. In this case, you ring the bell and that tells the organism that they can do something to produce the food. So this is called discriminative, a discriminative stimulus or operant conditioning. And so the big difference here is that the, the, the organism has agency in this other type of conditioning. The stimulus sets the occasion for some behavior that leads to, in this case, drug use, for instance. And so really what we found was, uh, as you say, the classical conditioning, this idea that someone in recovery can drive by a billboard and see a, an advertisement for a beer or something, and that's going to push them back into a relapse, doesn't seem to hold with the research we've done. It seems like once you've made that decision and you've engaged in the act, the act of recovery, those kinds of condition uh, stimuli don't really aren't likely to really push a person back into relapse. On the other hand, those discriminative stimuli, those things that really set the occasion for the drug use. And earlier I used the example of someone who has been sober for years, goes back to their high school reunion. And now he's in maybe his friend's living room where he drank when he was in high school with all of his friends who he drank with. That situation of that environment with those people sets the occasion for the drinking. And that, in contrast, is very, very predictive of a return to drug use. So, so it's important just to understand that there are really two different aspects here. And while you're right, we didn't really see much in the way of classical conditioned stimuli prompting relapse. These discriminative or oper operant conditions, these discriminative stimuli absolutely seem to be very powerful at prompting relapse. And in fact, that's a, a lot of the research related to the recovery uh, work that we've talked about is really aimed at not changing the impact of those classical conditioned uh, stimuli, but instead these discriminative stimuli uh, and, and leading to situations where the organism doesn't pay as much attention to those
things that are much more likely to prompt a relapse. Yeah, that's very interesting. And thank you for clarifying the difference between you know, classical conditioning, which I think we've heard a lot about. For instance, I think recently the internet has been talking about how if Pavlov himself decides to want to feed his dog when he hears the bell ring. Right. Um, yeah. So I think we hear a lot about that, but not too much about operant conditions. So right. Um, and then you talked about how a lot of your research is focused on maybe helping people to avoid those conditions like those operating conditioning conditions, I suppose, um, where they would want to go back and relapse into these behaviors. So what were some of the results of those studies or some recommendations perhaps that could help people to avoid those situations? Right, so, so I, I gave an example earlier of someone who might want to engage in uh, better fitness, better physical fitness. And, and so the example I gave was this person may decide to go home and go for a jog that day. But the likelihood that that's going to be sustained day on and day day in and day out is low, unless they arrange the situation to make it easier for them to run than to do whatever it is that they would otherwise do: sit on the couch and watch some show. You know, um, so one example that I that I'll give in this vein is you know before that person leaves their house to go to work in the morning, they might lay out their jogging clothes and their tennis shoes right in front of the door. So when they walk in the door, before they even get to the couch, they have to step over those things that set the occasion for running. And over time, that becomes more habit. That when you come in the door, it's sort of, you know, you take off your work shoes, you put on your jogging shoes and you go for a run. And that just becomes the default behavior. Um, so, so that's really, the sort of recommendation, you know, we say recommendation, I would say, you know, it, you could think about the contrasting situation. People who have substance use problems often arrange their environment to make it easy for them to use the substances. So if it's someone who drinks, they probably have liquor bottles around their house. Or if it's someone who uses cocaine, they probably have razor blades and mirrors around their house. Whatever that is that sort of sets the occasion for that drug use is around them at all times. And so getting rid of those things, moving them away, out of sight, getting them out of the house, those are all really good um, strategies. Um, and then, as I've said, you can't just get rid of those things. You've got to replace them with something else. And so replacing them with something that sort of sets the occasion for the types of things that the person would like to do. Maybe they want to take, take painting back up. They paint it as a as a you know college student and they want to go paint again so what do you do you go get an easel you get some canvases you get some you know paints and you put them right there in your living room right in the middle of the room um, this makes it a lot easier to do that behavior and makes it a lot harder to do the thing that you don't want to do um, and so what our research shows is over time eat with with this sort of practice and this sort of uh, situation even if someone comes over for dinner and brings a bottle of wine, that wine is not going to attract the same kind of attention as it would have before this sustained behavioral change that the people engage in. Yeah, that's very interesting about how sort of you start off with making a conscious effort to make a change in behavior, and then eventually over time that ends up becoming the new habit. Which is really cool. 
Very well said, and I couldn't have said it better myself, but that is the, the, that is the fundamental concept that we're working on, absolutely. Which, you know, is, is the converse of what happens with substance use disorders. You know, the first times that people try it, it's a conscious decision. You don't accidentally fall into a shot glass, you know. You make a conscious decision to take a drink and take another and then go out for drinks the next day or whatever. Um, and eventually that just kind of becomes habit. And so this concept, exactly as you st stated it, is sort of the undoing of that development of that drug use habit. And as you, as you said earlier, there's been a lot of research into how those substance use conscious choices lead into habitual use, much less research in how conscious decisions to enter recovery can turn into habitual recovery, which is of course, ultimately what we would like everyone to enter into. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So thank you so uh, much. That was pretty much all the questions I had. Baraj, do you have anything else? Yeah, so I just had uh, one more question and then I think you did it there. Um, so, I mean, addiction doesn't necessarily rely on substance abuse, just like doesn't necessarily rely on substance, right? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be alcohol or drugs, like gambling addiction can be a thing, you can get, like you can get it to TV or something like that, right? Like. How does the behavioral or you know, neuroscience aspects of that differ from like actual like physical substance disorder? That is a that is a very um, good question that I think we only sort of know the answer to. So I'd already mentioned that substances that people tend to abuse have this common pharmacological effect of increasing dopaminergic signaling in this particular brain region. It appears that all of those other things do the same thing. And I, I mentioned that it seems like this region is less about reward and more about sort of signal detection. Um, so if you use the example of gambling, for instance, you know, the, the, the act of winning a bet, whatever that, whether it's a card game or slots or whatever, produces a, a huge increase in dopamine. And if you think about especially when you go to a place like a casino, uh, th there are things that help that to happen, right? If someone wins at a slot machine, whist whistles go off, bells go off, lights light up, sirens sound. It makes it very clear that what you just did is something that you want to have happen again. And that necessarily causes an increase in this dopaminergic signaling in this region. And so for someone who's vulnerable to that, for whatever reason, that's going to draw them back in and they're gonna do the same behavior, trying to achieve the same outcome. The same thing you could say for any number of things, I believe, things like sex addiction, uh, you know, uh, over, over risk-taking, uh, you know, risky, high-risk behaviors that may be pathological. Um, even even physical act, you know, we have sort of talked about physical fitness as a desirable goal, but obviously there are people that become pathologically sort of addicted to physical fitness, right? So those things also seem to be seem to be very um, much driven by this uh, dopaminergic increase in the same regions, and um, so it seems like an uh, sort of a common. That seems to be com a common basket. Now, one thing I'll say about that is that um, all of these things that you mentioned is a very good point. All of these things that you mentioned 
may actually not be the problem themselves, but may actually just be symptoms that sit on top of an underlying problem with sort of impulsivity or impulse control or sensitivity to reward and punishment, that sort of a thing. And it may just be a, a consequence of your circumstances, as you were sort of talking about earlier, whether if you're, if you're, fr if you're in that situation, you're, you've got this sort of impulsivity or reward sensitivity issue, and your friends all gamble, that may be what grabs you. If your friends all smoke marijuana, that may be what grabs you. Um, so it may be a bit situational and it may just ride on top of some underlying uh, biologic or behavioral vulnerability. Um, this is why I think the concept of biologic or behavioral processes that are conserved is important because the idea that there's something fundamentally different between say nicotine and cocaine, you know, pharmacologically, absolutely, they have different pharmacologic effects. But at the end of the day, a behavioral disorder is really sort of fundamentally the same, whatever the focus or target of that disorder is. Thank you. I think that was uh, very interesting, that point you made about the um, impulsivity and sensitivity control. Because uh, I think that plays into like what people mean by like, addiction is also like a genetic thing. How, you know, like how you mentioned earlier that just say no doesn't just work because, you know, people's genetics might predispose them to make it harder for them to say no, right? So, yeah. It, not just, but yes, and, and, and it's important to point out, it's both, it's, a, it's that whole nature nurture thing, right? So you're right. There's a clear, clear relationship between someone's biologic history, their familial history, and their vulnerability. And there's also clear relationships between certain aspects of their social history and that, the, these problems. So you're absolutely right. You know, people born in certain circumstances may be more likely than others to develop these problems in the same way that people born to certain parents may be more likely vulnerable to these problems than others. Okay, um, thank you so much. I don't have any more questions for you. Um, thank you so much for sitting with us here today. I know it's almost like the working day is almost done in Texas. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to sit with us. Um, uh, and thank you for all of our listeners for listening to the podcast. I hope this was very informative and please tune in for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.